Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Inside Track. How do we know the best choices to make? And when we look back over our lives, how do we know the choices that have most influenced us from who we have been to where we are today? Join me as my guests and I explore defining moments from there to here on the inside track. I'm Debbie Hazelton. Hi there. Well, here we are in a new edition of On the Inside Track, and we are now in a new hour-long format. I don't know where I ever was thinking that a half an hour show would be easier to put together. Holy cow, was that a tough thing to edit. It was chopped off at the end lots of times there in the podcast, but not always there for the absolute itsy bitsy bit at the at the end that didn't squeeze under a half an hour. But in any case, a little bit of reflection before we get to this particular show's guest. When I began this show, uh, I, of course, thought it would be easy and manageable to bring you one each week uh, and uh, thought that at convention, maybe I would be able to squeeze lots of interviews into uh, that very busy week. Yeah, right. I don't think I did any (laughs) busy with lots of other things. But in any case, once a month, I think is quite doable. Um, I have been really very moved and appreciative of the sharing, the in-depth, the quality, the courage of many of the guests on this show who have really been open and willing to share lots of feeling. And I, I don't know that I thought that it would necessarily be that way. I don't know why, but in any case, I, um, I think many of us have appreciated the willingness of those who have been on this show to open up and share. And what's funny about that is that lots of times people feel embarrassed about mistakes that they've made or lose the ability to find the humor in some of the the mistakes that they've made, like, you know, gosh, wanting everyone to know that, you know, we're, we're just super together. We've got it going on. And well, guess what? I mean, you know, we all, I think it's been said, we teach what we need to learn and we continue to learn as we teach and experience and, Oh, heck, you know, I think we're all vulnerable and we're all doing our very best with all of what's on our plate. And it's not easy and it's it's often very challenging. And so as you hear each person open up, I'm hoping that what you what you do, what you take from that is is that you let that give you permission to be okay 
as who you are and right where you are and to know that you're never alone. None of us are ever alone. We all are vulnerable at times. We all make mistakes. The best thing is that we that if we learn from and we change as a result of some of the mistakes, that's what this show is about. Defining moments in our lives that helped us change or yeah, change our direction, defining moments that help to bring us in new directions. And sometimes not always for the best. Sometimes our changes of direction aren't always, they're down other side roads that we look back and go, whoops, what in the world was I thinking? So in any case, um, thank you for listening. And thank you for sharing. And thank you for any ways in which you are willing to really be on your own inside track. Um, Because I think on the inside track is where all of us who are human have far more in common. We just look like we have differences, but we all on the inside track have far more in common, in my opinion, anyway. Enough of that. Um, You can listen to me lots of other times on my other shows, but on this show, on this particular edition, we're going to be listening to someone whom many of you have known quite well and admired over the years from her role in the Friends in Art Showcase, and I'm talking about my good friend, Lynn Heddle. Now, one of the wonderful things that happened as a result of my work with the show Affiliates in Action was there were some people who got in touch with me to be on there, and we got to pick up where we left off. And such was the case with Lynn and Nancy Pendegraph, who many of you know from Friends in Art and from other aspects in ACB and from the time that she was on the Inside Track show. On, on (laughs) the Inside Track. Anyway, Lynn is someone who absolutely lives her passion. She is a musician, and when you hear, you will hear harp and singing in this show that is Lynn. Now, the main theme song that you hear on here. Uh, on this show repeatedly is the song Way Down Inside, an original composition from my good friend Desmond Clark. But you will hear, um, as you have heard bits and pieces of other musicians or other songs on here in this one, it will be Lynn. And um, Lynn and I have a lot in common. Our love of um, not only music, but um, the the spiritual part of us, uh, of all people. Uh, Lynn has been involved with hospice. I have as well in the past and um, have felt very deeply about um, the importance of people being able to move on from this plane with dignity and uh, with as much support and so as possible. And that's what Lynn, one of the things that Lynn brings. So let's get on with it so you can hear Lynn and the richness that she shares with us. Well, let's start wherever the beginning is, where wherever it 
seems most important to start. You know that this show is about landmark moments, defining moments that where you realize even if you didn't know it in the moment, but that it was a landmark for making a choice that brought you from wherever you were then to where you are now. Well, when I look back over my life, and I think everybody's said this more or less, they were greatly influenced by their parents as they were brought up Mm -hmm. to be of people that they've become. I've become a very curious and seeking person. And my mother is probably responsible for that because when I was young, very young, I mean, she didn't sign up to have a blind child, but she did get one because it was premature and had too much oxygen, like a lot of the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh So she was, she determined that I was not going to be left out of anything if she could help it. So she would go to the store and buy animals for me, bring them home, bought alphabet blocks with raised letters, um, would take me in stores and, you know, get stuff off the shelf and show them to me. And so I ended up teaching my younger sisters and brothers how, you know, the alphabet and the animal shapes and things like that and sharing with them. And she got me in a Braille class before I even started school. Were you the oldest? I was the oldest. Okay. So uh, there were a sister 14 months younger than me, and then later along came the other three. So you ended up helping them to know the alphabet, which helped you learn it more. Yeah, I think so. I taught Mm -hmm. them the shapes of the print letters. So I knew those at an early age and at a much later time in a rehab center, I was taught to write script and I sort of maybe, you know, unconsciously still, you know, already knew some of, of that because I learned it at such an early age. So I credit her with making me the curious person that I ultimately became and, uh, the reader, because I love to read. I've always loved to read. Uh, I had learned like before I even started school, like I said. So reading has always been a huge thing with me. And I used to read to my brothers and sisters, but if it was at night and we were supposed to be in the bed and under the covers, I would charge them a quarter. (laughs) (laughs) To read to them? Read to them. (laughs) Now that's smart. That is really (laughs) smart. Yeah, I remember charging my mother a nickel for back rubs, so no wonder I went into the massage field. (laughs) As I, you know, in later years, as I became a teacher and worked with um, veterans, one of my favorite things to teach them was not so, because a lot of them didn't learn it. They were older adults, and a lot of them didn't really learn a lot about Braille, but I used to love to teach any form of reading, be it the reading edge, you know, the reading machines that they had out there, there or um, later on, the Victor Reader, just any, you know, I, I said, I, if you got a reading habit, I'll encourage it. If you don't have one, let's form one, <laughs> you know. Good for you. Everybody to, to love to read and love to learn and seek. And I'll never forget when I was first starting to work 
in the VA with veterans. And we'll get back to sort of how that came about later if you want sure. to. Anything. First, one of the first people I worked with when I was a green intern was a college professor at one time. And he was losing his vision and he couldn't read the newspaper, couldn't drive. And that just really, you know, bugged him and couldn't read anything he thought. So I got so excited, I ordered, <clears throat> signed him up for the talking book service, and I ordered all this stuff that I just thought he would love, Shakespeare and everything, and and I just couldn't wait for him to get the talking books, and he wouldn't read. Mm. He was so despondent at that point about his vision loss that he refused to read. Mm. He didn't know what to do. just heartbroken that I couldn't reach Aww. this man and yeah. I don't know later he ever you know developed an interest but you know some people never really make that jump to visual reading from visual reading to audio reading I've had people that you know pick it right up and love talking books and just can't get enough of them and some that a lot of people I worked with never read in their life you know, they were a truck driver or some kind of whatever occupation. They never wanted to read, never liked to read, and they really take to the different reading methods. And so you liked to read from the beginning? From the beginning, I was have been a voracious reader of Braille, of any, any medium. So you remember early Braille books and early talking books and all that? The early Braille books, the early talking books. I remember when I would go and visit relatives in Massachusetts during the summer, I would mail several cartons of books up there so I would have enough to read when I was there. Mm. And, you know, it's it's changed so much now. You can carry your Victor Reader in mm. your pocket with several SD cards, and you've got your whole library right there and your phone and everything. So it's it's just changed so much. What a wonderful spirit you have of that can do for people that you taught, I'm sure. I imagine that you just, I mean, you've got such an up energy about you that I imagine you made quite a difference to students. I, I hope so. I always wanted to work with people, and my first real job was not doing that. I took a medical transcription course because my goal time was to just be independent and to live in an apartment on my own and do my own thing and live in the town I wanted to be. I wanted to be in Tuscaloosa because I had gone some graduate courses there and I wanted to stay there. So I went and took the medical transcription course and got a job at a mental hospital of all places in Tuscaloosa. I was not doing medical transcription as I was trained to do. I was just working in the personnel office because I took the standard state merit exam and this personnel director, my name came off the list and he decided he wanted to hire me and give me a chance. Mm. And so he did. And he hired me to work with a group of women who did not like me. None of them wanted me to be there. Oh, and talk about a bad vibe. Oh, mm. That was a bad vibe. That's an awful um, feeling. But oh. he was awful. It was awful. And luckily, I could leave the job and go home. So he wanted to hire you and he was awful too? 
No, he wasn't. Okay. He was sort of a can-do or, you know, he, he wanted to give me a chance. He wanted, let's hire this blind person. I think she can do this job. And I was doing nothing that I was trained to do, letters and things, and needed some assistance at, with some things. And these women were just terrible to work with. Were they, these these blind women? No. No. I in this office. Okay. And they were a little click, and they didn't want me in there. And did he, he knew this? I don't think I ever, I'd never talked to him about it. I just wanted to work, you know, I didn't want anything to go bad with this job. I wanted to do the job. And then I was able to leave it, go home, and be active in singing and all my other things that I was doing, you know, and it's leave it behind. How long did you stay in it? Um, this lasted about a year, and then they opened the word processing center. And I was moved to another part of the hospital with some of the same people. Mm-hmm. But we had individual offices where we would go and type on these uh you know, I had no assistive technology. I don't know if you remember the Magpard typewriters. They were IBM typewriters. I had a was just a typewriter, but there was a big unit that sat on the floor and you inserted this punch card in there and you typed a page, then you pressed a button and everything was saved on that page. Mm. Okay, so this was ancient technology now. Uh, There weren't even screens or anything. So I was a pretty accurate typist, and I became more and more accurate the more I did it because I tried, you know, to to be as accurate as I could. Well, they could make corrections on those cards. I could put it back and and correct it. But I sort of got a reputation as being a good transcriber because the doctors liked what I did, and I could understand them and uh, that's half medical transcription is understanding what people say mm-hmm. sometimes harder than it seems. But so I, I managed it that way for a long time because I was liking my other life in Tuscaloosa, which was not work. I hated work mm-hmm. and it got to the point where I, I didn't know how long I could stand to be in that situation. I think it, it just was not using my like it should be. Mm-hmm. And what got me out of that rut was a traffic accident. Oh my gosh. Mm. Um, shortly before that, I had talked to some friends that were doing rehab teaching and gone to the program at UALR, which is the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. So I had actually applied, you know, with their encouragement. They, you know, they said, well, you, you know, you really might like this a lot better. And I'm thinking that I probably would. <laughs> I sent the application in, and about that time, I took a ride with a friend of mine who was showing off her new car, and we went around a curb and hit a bank, hit a tree oh, in that God. car. And the next thing I remember, she had the sunroof open. I, I'm glad she did. I was standing up in the car with my head through the sunroof, wrapped around a tree. Mm. And, uh, I broke the two bones in my right arm. And if you're a typist, you don't mm. want to do that. Yeah. So, consequently, I was in out of work for a year, about a year, and stayed. My family lived in Fairhope, which is on the uh, eastern shore of Mobile Bay, and I didn't want to have you know stay with them. I wanted to be in my own place and have my own friends up there because I was singing and doing all this other stuff. So finally I got to do that, but I didn't have to work because I couldn't. Mm-hmm. 
And it finally came time to the cast to come off and everything was all the physical therapy was done. And I was about to go back to my job and dreading it. And I got a phone call from Pat Busson, now Pat Smith at UALR. And she said, you coming up here next month? And I waited a second and I said, yeah, I'll be there. Oh, did you already know there was a, did you already know why you were going up there? Yeah, she was the, I knew who she was. Mm-hmm. She said, I got your application uh, and oh. I'm waiting, you coming up here? And I said, oh. I'll, I'll be there. Oh, you I, had, okay. We had just lost my stepfather a year ago, so we were all getting over that. And I said, do you think you could get me to Arkansas? So she rented a U-Haul, which she didn't ever learn how to back up. And we drove to Little Rock and got me enrolled in the program. And that's where I stayed for a year. And so Pat Smith probably was the one that pushed me out of my comfort zone, even though as uncomfortable as I was working. Um, And she was a tough customer. And she, you know, we worked for a year and I ended up really the only one in the class because everybody else dropped. It was a small class. And then I got her undivided attention. Oh, my goodness. And she uh, actually we became very good friends. Mm. It was wonderful to work with. So it got time for me to um, do an internship, which was required in this program. And I had gotten used to working at Lions World and liked the people and thought, well, you know, maybe I'll stay up here and do my internship. And she said, no. You're not going to do that. You're going to go back to Birmingham and work in the VA because you need that experience. Yes, ma'am. So <laughs> back we go and, and got, you know, started, did my internship in the VA and I stayed there for the next 32 years. So I guess you liked it okay. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> it was. It was really a joy, the joy of my life working with veterans. I, I'll tell you, I, I just, they're just an incredible group of people. Mm. I met so many, so many neat folks. Um, you know, the professor that read, but I taught there for about eight years. I taught living skills and ADL and all of that stuff. Mm. Then they started in 1993 the computer department. And I said, please let me do this. I don't know how to use a computer, but I can learn. Mm-hmm. Nobody mm-hmm. else either. So what the heck, you know, mm. we opened the computer department. There was no time for training. Everybody just, you know, got in there and they got computers in. And if you knew how to type, we were doing word perfect at the time. And my one of my first students was an older gentleman wanted to do with his computer was to write up his experiences he was a prisoner uh, of the Japanese in the Bataan death march he was a prisoner for three years and he wanted to write his experiences from that uh, time and share those with his grandchildren. And he wanted to do it on the computer. Do it on the computer. So we learned in the process of doing that document, and we named the document prison. I'll never forget that prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, document. 
we learned spell check and we learned editing and we learned how to move around with JAWS and we learned all the things that we could figure out how to do about word processing on that <clears throat> document that he created wow. in it a long time you learned it right along with him mm -hmm. mm. and th it was m the most incredible story i've ever heard mm. and he had a way of telling the story he should this he what he should have published this yeah but he elected not to publish it um, we did it all. We bound it up into a little book, and he made several copies and gave them to his grandchildren, and they are the only ones that read them. Oh, did he give you one? No? No. Okay. And I, you know, wanted him to, it, it was his decision to do what he did and to go along with it, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's what he wanted to do. Was, he was very private in a lot of ways. Isn't that yeah. interesting, though? You love stories. You love reading. So here you were right in the middle of someone's story. Oh, and, and when you read it, you lived it. It was mm. unbelievable. Mm. In fact, the more he wrote, the more he remembered stuff. And he told me that he was seeking treatment for PTSD. He had never been diagnosed with it before. Mm. And I said, do you want to continue, you know, doing this work? Oh, yes, he did. So it must have helped him to heal. <clears throat> I think it probably did. Because mm -hmm. I've always heard that, that the more you write, the more you'll remember, and the more you will uh, realize things about yourself you never knew before. Well, and when you, when you either tell it or write it like that, you unburden a lot of that. I think, yeah, I think that went on. But that was, oh, I'll never forget him. Hmm. So you there you were learning about word processing and writing this mm -hmm. incredible experience. So, so was that near how far into being working there was this? This was <clears throat> I think I started working in 1985 and this was 1993 that they started okay. I was about eight, year, eight years into working. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is, is because I stayed there so long, I would encounter people again. They would come back and, and they would say, well, are you still there? I want you to. So they would, you know, we'd got the same people over and over again. So there are a few that, that I have known for the whole time I worked there. And I think we've explored every piece of technology out there because everything changed so much. You know, so it was it was real interesting to see these guys come and you know first they learned WordPerfect and they wanted the Windows computer and now you know more recently it was the um, Mac and the uh -huh. all the other devices yeah. you know iPhone and but I met you know like I said I, I there were so many people that I'll just, I'll never forget. Um, there's a lot to say about working in a center. You know, you get comfortable in a place and you see so much interaction going on between the staff and the students among themselves. A lot of rehab goes on outside of class because they get a chance with, to interact with each other. And, you know, had never met another blind person when they come through the program. They think they're the only ones out there. And that's why, you know, 
that's important. It's so important even not, you know, thinking about a sinner, but um, people need to be around other people who they can interact with and, sure. and get from. And Well, you have such an upbeat personality. I wonder if that man that hired you at that place where they didn't like you, I wonder if he knew that they were very negative and hoped that maybe you could light that fire or something. Funny thing, I actually saw him again. I not saw him. I talked to him last year, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. Mm -hmm. He became the, and still is, the what a CEO or COO or some big, you know, honcho at UAB, which is right here. Hmm. And he encountered somebody giving a mobility lesson and said, well, I used to, you know, have a blind person working for me and, and said who I was. And they said, oh, yeah, she's at the VA. You mm -hmm. know, we know her. So I actually got his phone number and called him and said, hey, Will, I'm still here. Wow. And he said, you know, I still, I still tell stories about you. <laughs> <laughs> So he, you know, he, he he gave me the chance I needed, and and I don't know why he did it for to this day, but he did. Oh, okay. So there you were at work for thirty two years, I think you said, and I know you just retired not long ago. I did. I got into something, I guess, in about two thousand six that I'm still active with, um, although I am retired. I, I still active at the VA as a volunteer. I've got it up and everything, but I still go and do music things with the guys. I shouldn't say guys because we've had several ladies come through, through the program. But in about 2006, I was at some workshop and I overheard a conversation. I wasn't even in this conversation. But they were talking about taking classes in the Music for Healing and Transition program on the weekends. And that got my ear. And I, I found one of them. I said, what is this you know, thing that you're going to do? And MHTP is a program where you are trained to be a certified music practitioner. You can play in hospital settings or settings or lot variety of places for people who are ill, uh, who are having surgery, or who are in hospice. So it's a prescription program where you provide music for relaxation. It's sort of a complementary medicine sure. in a way. Um, a lot of hospitals are hiring people to do that. That you don't work eight hours a day, but. Um, certainly the ones that, that have active people working as CMPs are not very many. It's going to take a while before hospitals really get what a can be mm -hmm. as a medicine or as a healing modality. So that just was right up my alley because I still was doing music. You know, at one time thought that I wanted to be a music therapist, but that never did work out. So I thought, all right, you know, I can do this on the weekends and they're going to have classes in Birmingham. Hey. So I signed up for this class. I called the director of the program and I said, you know, I'm totally blind and can I get the materials? And she sent me a book reading list and, and 
you know, yeah, you. And at that time, I had an omnicord, which is kind of an electronic, it's a little Japanese instrument that's got buttons and a little place that you strum. And I had taken that a lot to um, do music things with um, the guys every year, Christmas caroling, and I took my omnicord with me. So mm-hmm. we've, we'll talk about that in a second again. But I showed up with my little omnicord in class, and everybody else had a harp mm. in there. But I thought, you know, gee, I've never played one of these. And so one of the class members let me borrow one for the night and take it home and, and play with it. And it was it was kind of a heavy instrument. It was not the one I wanted. These were lap harps. They were not big pedal harps. So I to her the next day, and I said, i got to have one of these. Now, that song that you just heard is one of Lynn's own compositions called Song of Comfort. And now we're going to hear her play Amazing Grace. was hooked Mm. and so I called up the teacher that most of the uh, class members were taking from and her her name was Cynthia Douglas and I said have you ever taught a blind person and she said oh yeah come to my house I've got some harps I want you to see so I show up at her house the next Saturday and came home with my Eden which I still have and I will never sell your what my Eden harp which they make her well it's a it's a they call it the Eden. It's made by a builder in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So harps have names. And this was um, a harp which, it's it's heavy to carry, but it can be carried. Mm. You hold it on your lap. Oh, man. And sort of have to reach up to get the bottom notes, but 
it's um, it sits upright at an angle. It doesn't lay in your lap like a liar does. Mm. This these are at a right angle to you. Oh, I have and to see these. Cynthia, oh my goodness! I mean, she taught me, and she was one of these great teachers that, if it sounded bad, she told you. If your finger position was not right, she told you. Mm-hmm. She sugarcoat things. She said, "No, your sound is awful. Okay, yeah. I'll fix it." You know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But you. But she also sounds like she showed you how to fix it or helped you. Taught, no, yes, and she mm-hmm. taught all of the people that were in the class. There were not very many of us. Mm-hmm. But so, from that class, we had several. Um, I did complete the program and became a music practitioner. And, you know, obviously, I think there's one hospital in Atlanta that might have one. In fact, I know who this person is. It's working. But um, hospitals are just not hiring people to do it. Hmm. So, you know, you have to do it as a volunteer to Mm. play music. So I, um, part of the requirement for the program was that you do a 45 ship at the bedside you have to uh, do what at the bedside 45 hour internship where okay. you play you had to log the hours in and mm-hmm. that was the I talked to the powers that be at the VA and they let me do this I had to sign up as a volunteer and I had to work on weekends mm-hmm. to, to do this internship but I got it done it took a while and is that where you went to Daniel Brinkley or somehow connected up with what he was doing? About that time, I found out about him. Uh, Daniel Brinkley is um, doing a program called Twilight Brigade. That is a program where you sign up, you take a weekend course, and you work with veterans who are in hospice. Okay. So, yes, I am a graduate of the Twilight Brigade. I did take that course. I'm going to go review it again mm-hmm. soon and, and get back into that. So anyway, I, you know, when, besides working my regular job, I did do this music program and have um, gotten better. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning. I play with a group of people who meet once a week. Uh, we call ourselves the Ruth and Naomi Senior Outreach Um that's two people founded this group to work in nursing homes and with seniors. Mm-hmm. So we um, play, we come to the VA period, play for the guys there and we play at other places, uh, hospices, assistive living places. Mm-hmm. And we work, um, they kind of work their practice around me because they want to be in the group. So we used to practice it four when I got off work on Mondays and when they found out I was going to retire they said oh hurry up and do this he um did change it last June um and now we practice on Monday afternoons at one and I did or it was I was of age and something was telling me that I should do it I had you know I was married for 22 years and my husband over the past couple of years he had deteriorating health and not to the point where I couldn't leave him during the day but a month before I retired that his health took a downturn Mm, and 
So a month after I retired, he did pass away. Mm. During the month that he was in the hospital after I retired, I was able to be with him the way I needed to be with him. Yeah. So you can't tell me that somebody told me to retire or something told me to retire. That's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible timing. Dear one, now our meeting is over. Dear one, we must part. And if I never see you anymore, I will love you in my heart. And we'll walk on the shore. We will walk on the shore. Yes, we'll walk on the shore and be safe forevermore. ever sing with your harp sometimes okay sometimes um Mm -hmm. it's interesting some of the people you're playing for you wonder if they really hear you Mm -hmm. some of them can't communicate with you during my internship i on the palliative care unit called safe harbor at the va i'm going to go back and i had to stop you know i couldn't do this or haven't been able to do it since i retired because i just couldn't Mm mm-hmm but mm-hmm. now I'm getting to the point where I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was playing for a person who had brain cancer. It was just, you know, terrible. And she could talk to me. And I made up a piece that she wanted to hear every time I came in there called Breathe. It was just a, just a, a chord progression. It was very relaxing. And it, she would relaxed with it and at some point in that piece I did a little humming Mm -hmm. and 
I played it for her when I didn't do that. I just played the piece. And after the piece was over, she waited a second. She said, hmm, you didn't hum. Mm -hmm. We learned in a lot of uh, classes, we learned about how music heals and how you hear music and when you hear music and what effects it has. And supposedly hearing is the last sense that goes before you make your transition. Mm-hmm. And for the past several years, we have had a luncheon at the VA. And after that luncheon, we go Christmas caroling. I take the guys, we get some people to help me and get one of the chaplains to go. And we go all over the hospital to other wards and sing Christmas carols. And that's sort of become tradition. In fact, last Christmas, they said, you're going to come back and are we going to still do Christmas carols? And I said, yes, we are. So I came back, brought, you know, we had our carols. And one of our traditions is that we um, ring bells. Everybody has a bell. And we ring those when we sing jingle bells and we wish you a Merry Christmas. And um, some of the guys, it's funny, when I take up, they say, no, I don't want to, I want to keep mine. So <laughs> I've lost a lot of bells. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think the second time we did this Christmas caroling journey over there, the chaplain stopped and said, wait, um, we're going down a hall where there's a veteran who is making his transition at this point, and you all need to be very quiet as you sing, you know, don't, mm-hmm. you know, sing some of the quieter ones. And so I didn't tell the guys anything. I said, you know, we need to be very quiet on this hall because just because so we came sang a couple of songs and his family that is the last thing he was able to hear oh how sweet oh my god that must have been just wonderful well after we got back i told the guys i said now this is what happened and this is why we do this yeah because you never know Mm mm-hmm what a difference. A simple thing, like singing a song, can mm-hmm. have that kind of an effect on people. Yeah. Wow. And I bet it sounds like it meant something to the family. That It, it did. It yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we've gosh. done this every year for the past several years. Mm, that is so sweet. Gosh. What a touching. So you have... It sounds like there is something about being there for people who are dying that's important to you. It is to me, too. I gather it is to you. Uh, It is. I don't fear it. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I want to communicate that it's okay. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I do the Twilight Brigade, and, and that's why I was attracted in the first place to the MHTP program. That's beautiful. I love life, but mm-hmm. I don't think it ends here. Yeah. Yeah. That's the bigger piece is that it isn't you. Uh, uh, I mean, it's sad when they leave the separation from here or the. Yeah. It is. And I guess everybody wouldn't do this, but this is just something that I had to do is 
when I lost my mother in 2011 mm-hmm. and my sister the same year, mm-hmm. I got meeting to find out, you know, what was going on. And the person who did it was very good. And she described my stepfather this past year after Bill died, I got a reading with Daniel Brinkley. We're back to him again. Mm-hmm. And very accurate in describing Bill's personality. He had him mm-hmm. to a T, mm-hmm. just exactly the way he was. Yeah. And whether or not, you know, you believe that kind of thing or not, it's something that, that I had to do mm-hmm. just to assure the people had safely made it and they were okay. And then I was okay. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually did it, did it too, after I lost my mom and nine people in a few months. So, yeah. And these experiences just further open us up. Uh-huh. It's interesting um, how I got into all of this curiosity about other, other things, death and the universe and all this other stuff that I explore. I was... was going to a college in Mobile at this time before graduate school and I was taking music courses and, and I needed somebody to help Trent my music theory homework. Mm-hmm. So we church volunteered. She says, I'll, I'll help you. And so Gretchen at that time in her nineties, mm. she was a character. She mm-hmm was one of these real uh, independent progressive women at all her life. Mm-hmm. I think she grew up in the Amana colonies in Iowa, and her husband was some world-famous scientist who came home about every six months and was gone again. But she's into everything, theater and all this, very opinionated. Mm-hmm. And I can still hear her saying, after she had... She would read me my other things like psychology and some of the, you know, coursework I was taking in in college. So she had all my textbooks. She would have read the lesson. And she would say, now, what this man is saying is pure trash. But I will just briefly summarize it for you. (laughs) So, So we became very good friends. And for some and I, I'll never know why she did this or why she started this because I don't remember the beginning of it. I just remember how much I got out of it. She would begin to read to me from her extensive collection of Eastern mysticism and all this other mm. stuff she was into. And so after we did the lessons and did what we were supposed to do, then she would make the tea. Oh, and how special. And we would sit and read for a couple of hours. She would just read to me. And that was, she was the one that turned me onto the path of of exploring all this other stuff. So I've Mm -hmm. always been open-minded. I am not, you know, I'm not a a non-Christian. In fact, I've been embracing this um, thing lately. And my Harp Circle folks have gotten me into this because... When we have harp circle, then half the group is into the centering prayer group, which is a contemplative Christian prayer 
ritual. Mm-hmm. I don't know if ritual, it's a practice that you learn to do. It's a centering practice. Mm-hmm. And so I've gotten very involved in that and made that a part of my daily spiritual um, yeah. And there's a wonderful app on the phone that you can get. It's free. It's called Centering Prayer to Word. I got it after you told me this. And yeah. I love apps that just work. Mm-hmm. And this one does. Yeah. And it's a wonderful way to get introduced to it. And there's lots of resources you can find out about it. Set up your... Um, Prayer every day, you know, to last as long as you want. You have an ending and a beginning sound to uh, bring you in or, or, you know, just when it's finished. But the best thing you can do for yourself always is get into a group, and there are many of them around. Mm -hmm. A lot of the churches are doing it. Mm -hmm. Nice. So I take it you found a group? I have found a group. Mm -hmm. Okay. What other important landmarks or what other important pieces of of your journey would you like to make sure we get in here just always always learn always be curious I think you know as I look back over the things that happened to me the people who influenced me never just be with a rigid set of of things that somebody else might have told you to believe. There are a lot of veterans I've worked with over the 32 years that I will never forget. And among them are my first two Mac students that I had. And this was quite a coincidence. These were two guys about 20 years apart who did not know each other when they got to the center and they roomed next door to each other. They flew the same mission on the same plane out of Hawaii 20 years apart, and they didn't know it until they got to the center and discovered that they had that in common. So these were two pilots. One was in his 70s. One was about 50, and they were just like click and clack in the center, and I got to know them very well, and they wanted to use the Mac, and I asked if we could, you know, work together in a little group, which we did. And they were just the most fun, interesting folks to work with. They did not know anything about computers. Um, We had so much fun that I would come on Saturday and work with them, and and we would have an extra class. And one of them could see well enough to go down to Dunkin' Donuts and get the donuts and bring back those and Mm -hmm. coffee. And we had a little extra Mac lesson on Saturday mornings for several times. And it was just so much fun to work with those two pilots. It was, it was synchronicity. Mm. You never would have thought, you know, same mission, same plane, same, same place. And they're, yeah, at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's no doubt that there are angels around you. And in fact, one of the older one passed away a couple of years after, well, about a year later, and the younger guy called me, and we talk, We must have talked about him for two hours, just celebrating his Aww. exploits, and mm. and it, it was so neat to, to connect with him. I'm wow. still in, with, with the younger one. I have no doubt there are angels in your life and the angels in mine, and how wonderful. Angels among us are. Absolutely. Yeah. 
gosh, there's a Kindle book I need to find for you. I think it's called Angels on Board. It was a really neat, it was a, I don't know if it was a free or dollar book, and now I think it's three or four dollars, but it's it's fiction, but it's based on nonfiction, and it's just a cool book about angels. What if Bookshare has it? Bookshare has so much stuff. Well, I can I'm check and see. I don't know, but it, it was just a really neat Kindle book to read. Anything about contacting you that you want to get in here? Well, I've been pretty reticent about social media for some reason. I don't know why. I just never have gotten onto Twitter. I have a Twitter account. I can give you my email address. Whatever you want to use. Um, gosh, I like Twitter over Facebook any day. <laughs> but Meaning anyway, um, what I'll, do you I'll, want? I will, I will go kicking and screaming into Twitter one day. <laughs> oh, it's oh, I'll help you any way I can. Okay. Um, but what about? Do you want to give either Facebook or your email? You don't have to. I'll I'll give an email address. Okay. So the the best way now to contact me, if you want to, if you have any questions, is through email, which is I'll spell this. L-Y-N-N-S-B is in Bravo, R is in Romeo, C is in Charlie, S-B-R-C at gmail.com. Okay. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much. Yeah.